Welcome to the Jaor Podcast. A series of conversations between writer-director Rika O'Hara, myself, composer John O'Podmore, and members of the team drawn together to create a feature film based on Lord Byron's epic poem. In this episode, as an introduction to the project as a whole, I'll be talking to Rika about some of the fundamental themes running through both the poem and the film. Rika, what drew you initially to this particular story, to the point where it could become such a complex and rich script? Was it something in your own experience or origins? Um, I wanted to be a manga artist when I was young, and uh, I was working with a magazine editor sent by Osamu Tezuka. But uh, when this editor told me that my stuff was too artsy, I decided to study art instead. And so I studied painting and photography, but uh, the lure of the narrative was too strong. And uh, so I did a dance theater adaptation of Oscar Wilde's Salome. And then I worked on interdisciplinary performance piece, Tokyo Rose. Then a feature film, The Heart of No Place, which was inspired by the life and work of Yoko Ono. Looking back, the theme that emerged was the other both cultural and sexual. I was probably 11 or 12 when I read Sheridan Lufanu's Carmilla. That was when uh, I was reading a lot of life-changing mangas. And uh, a lot of these mangas had gender and sexuality issues at the center. Carmilla also is a lesbian vampire. And uh, you can't be too much more of an other in this white patriarchy, unless she is black, right? <laughs> yes. As the Jawa is set on the point of friction between the East and West, which, which was the Ottoman Empire, do you feel that it also relates to other tensions more widely across the relationship between East and West? I think East and West has been uh, basically the main friction that drove history. To other people, South and North is more important, but to me, it looks like East and West. From where I live, on the West Coast of the United States, the Pacific Rim is very important. When we talk about racism in America, we think of the slavery of Africans, but in the late 19th century to early 20th century context, the East Asian immigrations and the whole Asian immigration from Eastern Europe was just as defining. And wasn't it uh, in Europe, Kaiser Wilhelm, that actually came out with the expression, the yellow peril, die gelbe Gefahr, just basically homogenizing all the people in the East into one kind of lump of danger and antagonism? Yes, yes, the kind of lump of menacing horde. That phrase was used a lot in that era of 1980s, beginning of 1990s, in that era of a trade war with Japan, America's trade war with Japan. This was when uh, people were uh, 
hitting not Hondas and Toyotas with baseball clubs. And actually, this was when the Chinese-American man, Vincent Chin, was bludgeoned to death in a Detroit suburb. This was the atmosphere I came to this country in. And this was when I was working on my piece, Tokyo Rose. And when I learned that it was the Kaiser Wilhelm who coined this term, I had to look into what motivated this dread in Central Europe, you know, what you know, history was behind it. And of course, I came up with the Huns and the Mongols and the Turks. There's this um, book by E.A. Thompson. It is curious that Armanius, Claudian, Sidonius and Jordanus, when they first turn to describe the Huns, at once speak of their loathsome personal appearance. These writers can find no words strong enough to express their horror of the new barbarians. The Huns, says Amanius, are so prodigiously ugly and bent that they might be taken for two-legged animals or the figures crudely carved from stumps which are seen on the parapets of bridges. Even before the Huns, the Persians in the classical period to Alexander's time, and before that, there was a Trojan War, which was the conflict between Europe and Asia. And the Scythians were mythologized as Amazons. To the Greeks, the foreign enemies came from the east and the north. Uh, so the shelter was about the Cold War, and the Tokyo Rosa about the Trade War. And in the heart of no place, I was dealing with this post-Cold War world. And that's when 9-11 happened. There was so much happening in the Balkans, the ethnic cleansing, those ethnic wars, which seemed to be the conflict between the Muslim population and the Christian population. I was looking again into the story of the vampires. It's also interesting that in that part of the world, the enormous role that the US played in that conflict. I was in Kosovo a, a couple of years ago and the um, sculpture of Clinton is one of the most beloved things in the city. Oh. And, and there is still a constant presence of American soldiers there. Interesting, because Clinton was seen holding a copy of Robert Kaplan's book, The Balkan Ghost, in the 90s. That was the book that led me up this thread of uh, ah, the research, especially Patrick Lee Farmer, who was a British man who walked across Europe to Istanbul in the 1930s. And in Transylvania, he talks about finding traces of invaders from the East in place names and the people's looks. And, the, you know, when you start talking about people's mixed appearances, the picture that emerges is a history of centuries of rapes and pillage. So this is when the things kind of came together, why the vampires come from Eastern Europe, Balkans in particular. So the... the Yellow Peril was, in fact, a parallel to the whole vampire mythology. Or well, they are connected in that it's basically the dread of the other. 
the one is external and the other lives in your blood. You know, yellow apparel is like so much about what you can see, a skin color, right? But the, the vampire, it's the enemy that lives in your blood that you cannot get rid of, that you probably got it from your ancestors. I was first working on my extended theme of the evil female, Carmela. And uh, as a research, I read the Gyeru, Byron's poem, the Gyeru. And I knew the subject from Dolacroix's painting. And uh, what you see is this absolutely gorgeous, dynamic composition of swirling passion between these two gorgeous men. But when I read Byron's poem, I was left cold because this girl, Leila, is supposed to be the cause of all this passion between these unbelievably hot men. Okay. I mean, I mean she is dead already when the poem begins, and she never says a word. She's described as beautiful, especially in the later part of the poem. But it's like she has no personality. So I was wondering, ooh, this is kind of weird. It's like so bloodless, you know. Then uh, uh, that's when I came across Professor Nesvet's idea. And so it was like when she said, Leila is alive, I said, oh, Wait a minute. And that Byron had, Byron did repeatedly toy with cross-dressing themes. Okay, well, that extends the themes in the story from East-West and vampirism into another hugely important contemporary thread of gender, sex and sexuality. Do you think the historical references and the setting of the Jao still have relevance to uh, gender and identity issues today? I'm thinking particularly of trans rights. Byron's bisexuality is well accepted by all his readers, but cross-dressing presents a more complex problem because it is about gender identity and uh, that implies power dynamics. There is a Greek word, malakos. I don't know the pronunciation, if it's malakos or malakos. In modern Greek, it means softness. But uh, in biblical sense, it means a passive partner in the homosexual relationship. It was basically considered even worse than the sodomite. And adding to that, the story happens between the East and the West the military conflict with the Ottomans and the Greeks as the subjugated people, it all becomes this geopolitics and power. It's really Orientalism as gender politics. Making that difference between who's on top and who has the power, basically. Exactly. And uh, helping me sort this all out was Charles Lane, our Baba, he quoted Oscar Wilde to me. Oscar Wilde said, everything is about sex, except sex. Sex is about power. <laughs> okay. 
that's very, that's also, that's very wild, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe at this point we should go back to the original text and have a listen to Nick Rawling reading from the Jawa the moment when we first encounter Laertes the Jawa. Cool. Who thundering comes on blackest steed with slackened bit and hoof of speed beneath the clattering iron sound the caverned echoes wake around in lash for lash and bound for bound the foam that streaks the courser's side seems gathered from the ocean tide though weary waves are sunk to rest there's none within his rider's breast and though tomorrow's tempest lower tis calmer than thy heart young Jao. I know thee not, I loathe thy race, but in thy lineaments I trace what times will strengthen, not efface. Though young and pale, that sallow front is scathed by fiery passion's brunt, though bent on earth thine evil eye, as meteor-like thou glidest by. Right well I view thee and deem thee one, whom Othman's sons should slay or shun. For you as a woman working on this, where did you find the, the links to really get to the heart of a, a love story between two men? Where did I find the balls to do it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was a similar moment in uh, with The Heart of No Place uh, when I was playing a Yoko Ono-like character who had suffered this loss of her husband which was a generational loss. I mean, the death of John Lennon was mourned by a generation of people. And uh, now was uh, when I thought back to uh, my own friend's death from AIDS and thought about all the people who died of AIDS and, you know, that people who mourned them. That's how I connected to that character. And similarly, when I was wondering how I would find the balls to do it, that's when uh, President Barack Obama said in 2016, because Hillary Clinton was running, when men are ambitious, it's taken for granted. But when a woman is, dot, dot, dot. When a woman is ambitious, she is vilified, she is attacked, she is called a dragon lady, etc., etc. So um, Leila slash Laratus struggle is the same as the struggle of all girls and women who must fight the gender role expectations. Mm. And that same goes for all femmes, including trans women and feminine men. Mm. Identifying with, with the other again. Yes, exactly. So the title, the Jao, is a very unusual and very intriguing word. And there are different pronunciations depending on who you speak to. What does the word actually mean? And is there a correct pronunciation? Uh, Byron himself said it's unpronounceable. <laughs> okay. 
Well, I, for, for me as an English speaker, when I see the word, the big issue is seeing four vowels next to each other. You never, oh. you never see that in English. So it's <laughs> very, true. very confusing about how to actually put all that together into one or two sounds. Mm-hmm. Well, the way it's written down is a problem. Uh, I think it came from French because the French are the ones who first... Uh, translated into European language, Arabian Nights, and the source of the word, Giaur, is Arabic. Byron was a fan of William Beckford, who wrote Vatek, or Vatek, and he read it when he was a child. And in Vatek, that's an Orientalist tale in which uh, there is a strange djinn-like character. Like a genie. Trickster. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, trickster character called the Gyaur. Uh-huh. And this could have been another hint he dropped about his sexuality because Beckford himself was exiled to Portugal after a homosexual scandal came to the surface. And, and what is the actual, uh, the actual meaning of the word? It means originally the infidel or, you know, unbeliever, the one who does not know God. Closer to probably like heathen, maybe. And it fits very well for a vampire. Oh, absolutely. It's the other. And every Greek person I talk to take it personally because that was historically used by the Turkish occupiers as a derogatory term. One Greek woman told me that meant something like a cockroach that needed to be stamped out. Oh, wow. Does that add weight to the way that you have made Laertes, the Jaor in the screenplay, a Greek? Oh, yes, absolutely. Because if Greeks take it personally, he has to be Greek. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, and also, also that way, feeds back to how Byron died. You know, he died for the cause of Greek freedom, Greek liberation so that he absolutely had to be Greek for me. You have been listening to the Gyeru podcast by the creators of the feature film based on Lord Byron's 1813 best-selling poem. I am the writer-director Rika O'Hara and... I'm composer John O'Podmore. Rika has been joining us from Los Angeles while I'm here in London. Thank you again for listening and look out for the next episode of the Jaor Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>